credit scores, down payments, interest rates. Car buying can be a numbers game, but you don't have to be a math expert to get the keys to your dream car. Just use Kelly Blue Book My Wallet on AutoTrader. Crunch your numbers and get personalized results so you know exactly how much you'll pay each month for your car. It's like having a magic wand for your wallet. Presto! The car you've been wanting is now within reach. So hit the road and leave your calculator at home. Auto Trader. Something that makes me crazy is when people say, well, I had this career before, but it was a waste. And that's where the perspective shift comes. That it's not a waste that everything you've done has built you to where you are now. This is She Pivots, the podcast where we explore the inspiring pivots women have made and dig deeper into the personal reasons behind them. Join me, Emily Tish sussman every Wednesday on She Pivots. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, everybody. Before we get going today, we wanted to uh, acknowledge ourselves and you, right? <laughs> That's right. <laughs> do, 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 Chuck, what episode is this? This is episode number 1,500. <laughs> Isn't that nuts? <laughs> it's nuts. Up to this moment, I've just been thinking of episode 1,500, but when you say it like that, it just seems like a mind-boggling number. It is mind-boggling, and uh, many thanks are in order. Uh, first of all, to Jill Hurley, our Minister of Stats, for pointing this out, because we would mm-hmm. have never known, right? Yeah, definitely. Uh, we got to thank Jerry, of course, and also Dave, Max, Matt, Noel, all the producers who've helped us along the way, right? Yeah, uh, and of course, Ed and Livia and uh, Dave Ruse are intrepid writers. Is that the right word? They're intrepid for sure. They're, they have okay. no trepidation. <laughs> That's right. And we're acknowledging the Stuff You Should Know Army as well and all the listeners mm-hmm. because there's no way we would have gotten to episode 1500, uh, let alone 500, had no one ever listened to begin with. And, uh, you know, we're super lucky to have this job that we continue to be able to do, you know? Yeah, for sure. Of course, we wouldn't have gotten anywhere without you guys listening out there. And then, of course, Chuck, last but not least, we got to thank our families. Like Yumi and Emily, Momo, Ruby, the whole gang. Yeah, of course. Everyone provides us a lot of support, and uh, it's just pretty amazing. The number 1,500 is is a weird number to look at, and uh, we're not going anywhere anytime soon, so don't think this is a sign-off, but we just (laughs) wanted to acknowledge it and, and say big thanks to everybody. Yeah, so thanks, everybody, and we'll just stop now and start the episode. How about that? That sounds great. Welcome to Stuff You Should Know, a production of iHeartRadio. Hey, and welcome to the podcast, or should I say pancast. I'm Josh, there's Chuck, (laughs) it's just the two of us, but uh, I'm excited about this one enough that I've basically birthed a Jerry. (laughs) Oh, I'm not even sure what that means. Just don't think about it too much. Okay. Uh, yeah, we're talking about breakfast, and uh, I mean, I could name about, I feel like about a third of the websites on the internet for this, because mm-hmm. if you want to learn about breakfast, there are a lot of websites that want to teach you about it. It's tailor-made for the internet. You know, there's nostalgia, there's tastiness, um, there's history. It's got everything. It does. Uh, but uh, how stuff works, our old colleagues, of course, mm-hmm. were involved in Smithsonian Mag and the Kitchen Project and... The Breakfast Shop in Chicago Waffles, great website, by the way. Yeah. Uh, the Daily Meal, there were a bunch of websites where we 
curated this wonderful, and this is just probably a part one. Like there are so many breakfast items with rich histories that we're not going over today. So I feel like we could do another okay. one of these later. Have we ever done one on breakfast cereals specifically? Because that seems like something we could spend an hour <sighs> saying like, oh, do you remember <laughs> Do you remember Frankenberry? Well, we haven't, but we should. Okay. Yes, let's just let's add that to it. the list. That sounds fun. Um, so, yeah, we're just going to do kind of a, just a select few today. Maybe some that you're not going to be very surprised at. And as a matter of fact, I'll be surprised if anybody's surprised at any of these selections. But they're still good nonetheless. But before we get to that, we should probably talk about where the idea of breakfast comes from because it's just such an integral part, or it once was such an integral part of people's lives that you just kind of took it for granted, right? Yeah, and it's really interesting. The uh, the How Stuff Works article points out that like what we consider breakfast foods, like there's so many different things that go into what made that happen, and mm -hmm. none of them are the same. Like sometimes it's religion, sometimes it's technology sometimes it's just what was available sometimes it's cultural like regional norms uh immigration right. plays a part it's just super interesting i think but breakfast as a whole uh is you know it's something that people have always eaten <laughs> sure <laughs> that first meal of the day depending on where we are in the world and where we are in history um the importance of breakfast is a little bit different it's like it's not quite the same thing as it was, you know, hundreds or thousands of years ago, though. No, not at all. And you can make a really strong case that, at least in the States, it's not what it was 30 or 40 years ago, you know? Yeah, good point. But um, the idea of breakfast, if you hadn't figured it out by now at this point <clears throat> in your life, it's um, break and fast, like you're breaking your fast put together. And I always thought it just had to do with, you know, you you woke up, you hadn't eaten since the day before. It just so makes sense. You've been fasting whether you wanted to or not because you can't really eat while you sleep. I've tried. <laughs> and so you're breaking that fast. But apparently it's much more religious than that because people used to fast until church when they would get uh, the Eucharist or the communion wafer. And after that, they could, you know, go whole hog on some on some meals, and that was their breakfast. But it would come later in the morning, if not in, in the afternoon. Yeah, and I think um, as far as seeing that word written down, they trace it to uh, 15th century, uh, and that's in the English language. But the same word apparently can mean different things, or mm -hmm. used to mean different things in different countries. Uh, anything from a, a sort of a smallish lunch, if you're in France, uh, to a lighter supper in Italian. And they, you know, like I said, depending on where you were and when you were, there would be different, and we'll see as we go on, you would eat like things that you would consider really weird now. Like mm -hmm. unless you're going to a Sunday brunch or a Saturday brunch and having like a Bloody Mary or something, the idea of drinking for breakfast right. alcohol seems really weird. But that used to happen. They used to drink, you know, hard ciders and, and sort of, low ABV beers, mm -hmm. uh, all the way up until like the mid-19th century. I saw it can be anywhere between the 17th and the 19th century, but that, yes, it, but it, that went on for millennia. That's just what people did at breakfast. They drank, I love that. <laughs> they drank booze every day. I think kids did as well, if uh -huh. I'm not mistaken, sure. I saw somewhere. But then in addition to like drinking booze, there would also be stuff that you'd be like 
fish for breakfast, yeah. soup for breakfast. And it seems odd to those of us in the West who are, you know, accustomed to that specific Western kind of breakfast. But that's still the case in some places today, uh, especially Asia. Like in Japan, um, they eat like fish and soup and ramen and stuff like that for breakfast. Like their breakfast looks just like their lunch or their dinner. Oh, really? So, yeah. So the idea of breakfast, as we understand it, isn't like global um, by right. any stretch of the imagination. Yeah. So we're taking this from sort of a North American Eurocentric point of view. Yeah, you could almost title this like how the Western breakfast evolved, you know? Maybe I will. Okay. <laughs> I dare you, Chuck. Game on. <laughs> uh, so this is a little bit of a rehash, but um, I just noticed we're saying breakfast words all over the place. Mm-hmm. Like hash. Yeah. Uh, see, that's one we could put on the next one. Corned beef hash? Just breakfast hash. We're not going to cover omelets. We're not going to cover muffins. Okay. Like, I think there's a whole part two in the, in the making. Okay. I love it. Uh, but bacon and eggs, it seems like eggs have been eaten sort of since time in memoriam for breakfast. I didn't see anywhere exactly why. My hunch is that uh, you get that egg out of the chicken in the morning. Sure. And maybe it just goes <laughs> right onto the plate. You pick it up by its neck and shake it until the <laughs> egg falls out. I think I think they like eggs in the morning, right? I I don't know. I I don't remember. Now you I'm know, doubting myself because I'm kind of going off the dome here. I don't remember if there's like a specific time or not, but but maybe if they laid it overnight or something like that. When you got up in the morning, there was an egg. Who knows? Oh, that's true. That makes good sense. Yeah. Uh, but the whole bacon thing we talked about in our, uh, if I do say so myself, our great. Uh, maybe our greatest live episode of all time on Edward mm-hmm. Bernays, the nephew of Sigmund Freud and PR mastermind. Uh, really good episode if you haven't listened to that one. But um, the bacon and like a big, huge, hearty breakfast wasn't really the thing in America at the time. And this was in, you know, the like, what, 1920s and 1930s? Yeah, and, and even before then. And I, from what I can tell um, – Breakfast more resembled breakfast today. Like if you ate anything, it was really quick, convenient. You had to be out the door. Um, and that was a, um, a big um, result of industrialization and urbanization. Oh, yeah. Like you didn't go work in the fields and then come in and have a big spread for breakfast a couple hours after you woke up and started working. Like you were away from your house and you had to be out of your house fairly quickly. So breakfast, I think, just kind of went the way of disco. <laughs> Before disco. Right. Uh, but the Beechnut Packaging Company in the 1920s, uh, they sold a lot of stuff, but one of the things they sold was bacon. And bacon just wasn't something that uh, was selling as much. It, it wasn't sort of the staple item you would think of today. People certainly mm-hmm. ate it, but it wasn't a breakfast item. So they got Bernays on board, and they mounted a whole campaign, a big PR campaign, to basically say, hey, it's first thing in the morning. You need to really just load up on tons of food. And bacon should be a part of your stable diet, and it goes great with eggs, and they're correct. Yeah, they they advertise that you lose energy overnight, so you need to fill up on a big breakfast. And the idea of, like, breakfast being the most important meal of the day comes from that. Yeah. Advertising. And we'll see that a lot of the breakfast, as we recognize it, came from advertising in a company who said, we got a bunch of stuff we want to dump. Let's yeah. just completely change the way Americans live and think. Yeah. What's your deal with breakfast? Do you like breakfast? Um, I have changed my eating habits in the last few months, and so I've started eating breakfast again. But there was a, a very long stretch where I didn't eat anything until 11 or noon. That's my deal usually. 
Yeah. Um, and I, I'm not quite sure. I'm, I've been told, like, that's not good at all for your body. Not that, like, breakfast is the most important meal of the day, but just going hours when you're hungry and not giving your body food might not be the best thing for it. Um, so I've started to kind of eat earlier and earlier. Interesting, because that reminds me I want to do one on, uh, oh, what's the fasting trend called now these days? The Intermittent fasting? Yeah, intermittent fasting, which um, is all about not eating breakfast. Well, we did a whole one on fasting, and there's no way we didn't talk about intermittent fasting, is there? I don't know. It seems I don't. I think there's there's something there for a full one. But okay, my deal with breakfast is I love breakfast. I just don't ever eat breakfast. Like breakfast is a sort of a treat meal, mm-hmm. and when I think of like a big breakfast, it's like an out to eat thing on vacation yeah, kind of thing. And yeah. I, and I, I but I love everything about breakfast. Like maybe my favorite meal as far as like a plate of hash browns and mm-hmm. eggs and bacon and sausage and waffles and pancakes and muffins yeah. and bagels and all that deliciousness. I love all of that stuff, but you can't, you can't eat like that. No, that's why it does seem to be a vacation thing, you know, and that's why they have breakfast buffets when you go on vacation for yeah. that very reason, <laughs> you know? Uh, but we are about to talk about one of my favorite breakfast items, especially obviously when I go to New York City and I get my, uh, I bring my extra large Ziplocs, and I come home with a dozen bagels from Essa Bagel, my favorite one. Mm-hmm. They're huge. There's no way you can eat a full one. Uh, oh yeah, yeah. You split it in half, and you eat like a half a bagel. I mean, they're like they're enormous. That sounds like a wager to me. <laughs> I mean, you could, but it's just that's a lot of lot of bread. <laughs> You'd just be suffering toward <laughs> the end. Uh, but a bagel, if you don't know, is a um, they describe it as a kind of roll. Um, but it's a it's a bakery item. It's yeast risen. It's dough that's shaped by hand and in the form of a ring. Mm-hmm. Uh, the very key part about being a real bagel is you boil it before you bake it, and it's very chewy in the middle. But if you do it right, it's uh, you shouldn't even need to toast it. I do like mine toasted because I like the inside sure. toasty, but uh, very crispy and browned on the outside after you boil and bake it. How do you eat your bagels? Well, I used to just eat butter before I knew anything about life. Mm-hmm. Uh, but That's now, still good, though. That's still very sure. good. It's like that kind of plain, simple you yeah. know, taste can be really good. No, I like it. I like nothing but everything bagels. It's my the only bagel for me. But um, now I do sour cream. Um, mm. I prefer not whipped. I prefer just the regular sour cream. Oh, yeah? But I will have it whipped. And then uh, I really love the the smoked salmon on top now. Yes. Okay. You finally got to the important part. And the everything bagel shake. I add that on top as well. Wow. So let me ask you this. Do you ever treat yourself and get a red onion, carve up a few like ultra thin slices and put some capers on top? I'm not into capers and onion. Oh, well, then definitely avoid that. But if you were into capers and onion, I would strongly recommend doing that. Yeah, I mean, that's that's a very classic bagel, I about to say recipe, but, mm-hmm. you know, what would you call that? An assemblage? <laughs> I think that's perfect for it. <laughs> but then one last thing about that, Chuck. <clears throat> so I'm glad you said smoked salmon because that's my preference, too. And for a very long time, that's all I ate. Um, and I wasn't aware that there was a difference between lox and smoked salmon until I ordered a bagel with cream cheese and lox out and ate it. And I was like, puh, puh, what is wrong with this salmon? <laughs> and it turns out lox is different. Lox is entirely salt cured. So it's one of the saltiest things you'll ever eat in your life. Yeah. 
Whereas smoked salmon is also salt cured, but they go lighter on the salt and it's heavier on the smoke flavor. It's way better in my opinion. Yeah, and the the everything bagel is already pretty salty, so um, that yeah, that would be what Emily would call a salt lick. Right. So we don't even know actually where the word bagel came from. It's kind of a weird word if you think about it, but there's some pretty good contenders. Um, Yiddish has one called begin, which means to bend. Makes sense. Okay. Um, the uh, German uh, Germans, our friends in Germany, they have a word for bracelet that sounds familiar, bracelet or ring, bugel. Not bad. That's awfully close if you ask me. But the one that I always thought it was because I learned it from Uncle John's Bathroom Reader mm. is that it's an Austrian term for stirrup, uh, bugel, because the stirrup is supposedly what the bagel was originally shaped after, at least according to Gordon Jovna. I'm, I'm going to go with that one too. That one spoke to me. Yeah. So that's the one we're going to go with. That's the official SYSK choice for where the where the word bagel came from. Uh, that's right. And if you want to know where the printed word uh, B-A-G-E-L came from first, uh, they've tracked it down to the year 1610. I love uh, Very impressive in the Community Relations, I guess, handbook for <laughs> Krakow, Poland. Mm-hmm. And this is pretty great. A bagel is on the list of official items that you can give a, a woman on the occasion of her son's circumcision. Bam. I love that. So that's the first instance of bagel, you say, right? As we understand it, B-A-G-E-L? In print, yeah. So um, th- the that's fine and good. Like the people of Krakow had been eating bagels for centuries by the time we got on board. But we can thank our friends uh, who were part of the 19th century Jewish exodus to the United States for bringing bagels to us. Uh, And at first, it was, like, strictly considered an ethnic food, and it was really pretty much relegated to um, the uh, Jewish community of New York in particular. And they set up bagel bakeries out the yin-yang. There was at least 70 in the Lower East Side alone uh, in the early 20th century. And there's a a bagel bakers union that was formed there, and they did their whole meetings in Yiddish. So you can kind of understand if you put all that together that, yeah, it didn't really creep outside of that neighborhood for a little while. Yeah, but it uh, this is one of the instances where, uh, I guess, modern technology sort of came into play to take something wide, as is the case a lot of times. But mm-hmm. uh, they, you know, they got bagel factories, basically. They got these machines that could mass produce bagels in the mid to late 1950s in the United States. That was a big deal. And a man named Harry Linder of New Haven, Connecticut, got a hold of these things. And we're like, these are great. We can make tons of bagels now. And his son, Murray, Murray Linder, obviously of Linder's Bagels, mm-hmm. uh, invented a slicing machine. Uh, so they're pre-sliced, which is uh, always appreciated. But usually, <laughs> if you get a pre-sliced bagel, it's probably not the best bagel. But you can imagine that's when they really took off like a rocket. People Absolutely. Were like, I don't have to slice them. They're already mostly sliced for me. Uh, sold. Yeah, and you can get those. I don't have one, but the uh, the little bagel slicers you see in the shop, that like hmm. the, the guillotine. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't think those work that well. They tend to smash the bagel down, mm-hmm. yeah. um, and then they if they don't fit in there right, it's just I, – I get why they use them, but the coffee shop up the street for me uses those, and I'm always like, please don't cut it. I'll cut it when I get home. Yeah, I mean, the best thing is just a serrated knife or a bread knife, which yeah. also is serrated. That's what you want. Exactly. And by the way, let me thank you publicly for the avocado – <laughs> whirly gig that you got me. 
You're very welcome. Have you used it yet? I did. And I, what I found out on the first use is that it's not great if it's a little softer. Uh-huh. Uh, but I bet if it's a good firm avocado, it works wonders. It really does. And I had no illusions whatsoever that you were going to just change your whole game. But I thought, you know, I'd give you the, the chance to if you wanted to. No, I have to now because my daughter likes it. So. Oh, 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 okay. Wow. <laughs> and she loves avocados. Nice. So that's perfect. So it was really for her then, I guess. Yes, that's right. So she says, thank you, Uncle Josh. <laughs> You're very welcome. We share here. a birthday. And happy birthday tomorrow to you, by the way. Yeah, happy birthday to her tomorrow, too. Yeah. I'm not sure people know that, but that's one of the very funny things about life is that <laughs> <laughs> my daughter was born, and I was looking up celebrity birthdays to see who shared a birthday with her, <laughs> and your face pops up. <laughs> that's awesome. It was a very, very funny day. Was that sadcelebrity.com? Uh, no, it was it was a legit celebrity birthday site. I wasn't on it. I was like, how'd you get on there? Uh, they reached out to me sometime, and I was like, sure, I'll definitely lift a finger to be on this website. And it paid off in aces, apparently. Yeah, it was a very, very funny moment. I was like, you got to be kidding me. So just one last thing. Let's put a punctuation mark on bagels and then take a break. How about that? Let's do it. So um, apparently, as far as How Stuff Works reports, the idea of spreading cream cheese and adding locks to bagels was, if not invented, at the very least widely popularized in America by Family Circle magazine. I love it. Me too. Good stuff. That's a punctuation mark if I've ever heard one. Right through that hole in the middle of the bagel. (laughs) All right, let's take a break. Something that makes me crazy is when people say, well, I had this career before, but it was a waste. And that's where the perspective shift comes, that it's not a waste that everything you've done has built you to where you are now. This is She Pivots, the podcast where we explore the inspiring pivots women have made and dig deeper into the personal reasons behind them. Join me, Emily Tish sussman every Wednesday on She Pivots as I sit down with inspiring women like Misty Copeland, Brooke Shields, Vanessa Hudgens, and so many more. We dive into how these women made their pivot and their mindset shifts that happened as a result. It's a podcast about women, their stories, and how their pivot became their success. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. Western nations like the U.S. and Europe. Mexico will likely have its first female president. And then you have China. And help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters. He'll get his yo-yos to Europe in time. But the longer this drags on, the more worry he's getting. They knew that they needed to do this as fast as they possibly could to get a drug on the market as fast as they could. I'm David Gura. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleya Mosin. We cover the stories behind what's moving money and markets. Basically, everyone was expecting, if not a calamity, certainly a recession. But the problem is that that paperwork, as our reporting showed, is fake. As someone who's covering the market, I'm often very worried about an imminent collapse. I'm thinking about it quite often. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Saleya Mosin, and I've covered economic policy for years and reported on how it impacts people across the United States. 
In 2016, I saw how voters were leaning towards Trump and how so many Americans felt misunderstood by Washington. So I started The Big Take D.C. We dig into how money, politics, and power shape government and the consequences for voters. It's an election year, so there's a lot of focus on the voters that TikTok is reaching. The initial reaction is like, oh, things are looking so resilient. I don't want to be too pessimistic, but I just don't see the political will down in Washington right now to, to change their tune. I think the American electorate has been signaling that it expects a rematch of the 2020 election. These are unprecedented times. With new episodes every Thursday, you can listen to The Big Take DC on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I never thought I'd take my three young kids to Sicily to solve a century-old mystery. But that's what I'm doing in my new podcast, The Sicilian Inheritance. Join us as we travel thousands of miles on the beautiful and crazy island of Sicily, as I trace my roots back through a mystery for the ages and untangle clues within my family's origin story, which has morphed like a game of telephone through the generations. Was our family matriarch killed in a land deal gone wrong? Or was it by the Sicilian Mafia? A lover's quarrel? Or was she, as my father believed, a witch? Listen to The Sicilian Inheritance on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. know something we should have mentioned in the bagel segment what bialis what a biali is a is sort of a cousin of a bagel b-i-a-l-y never heard of a biali no i think of the deal with a biali is there's no hole i'm not sure what the other difference is i didn't look this up but i just i thought we should shout out the biali because then we'll get listener mail it sounds suspiciously like an english muffin Chuck. no <laughs> i think it's just well, I got to look it up because I don't want to misspeak. But okay. I think it's a bagel without a hole. Okay, I've, I've genuinely never heard of that by name or by concept either. Oh, interesting. All right. So let's let's talk oats then. Yeah, oats is one of those things that is maybe in the running for oldest breakfast uh, food because for centuries and thousands of years mm-hmm. people have been eating growing oats and eating oats in some kind of slobby porridge type thing yeah what's crazy is the oat was actually domesticated relatively late compared to like wheat and barley because the yields of the oat are much smaller but eventually they were like oh we'll give this a try too so um as far as um what about 4500 years ago we were we were domesticating them and eating them but the 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 way that they were eating oats before was they would take the husk off and then eat the whole oat yeah. and that that method or that what you have after you just dehusk and leave the oat whole is called a groat yeah that doesn't sound very good no, well, prepare for this. Um, apparently, there are fats in oats, specifically in groats, um, that can go rancid. Ugh. So you could be eating rancid groats for breakfast had it <laughs> oh, not been for a couple of geniuses named Henry Seymour and William Heston who developed a different process called rolled oats, which actually gets rid of those fats that can go rancid. That's right. And then you have, I mean, kind of, exactly what we have today. I mean, there are obviously different kinds of 
oh, it's like steel cut and different varieties, but mm-hmm. uh, rolled oats is what we're eating today. They founded, uh, Hesed and Seymour founded Quaker Oats, mm-hmm. and apparently one of the, re- they're not Quakers, apparently one of the reasons, as, at least as legend goes, that they named themselves Quaker Oats is because they wanted to seem like an upstanding uh, non-fraudulent company because food fraud in the 1800s was a thing where they would water uh, milk down and they would basically try and uh, trick the customer into thinking they were eating a more pure product that was cut with something else, like yeah. like bad cocaine. <laughs> yeah, it makes sense, though. Yeah, if you're going to sell cocaine, you should be like, this is Quaker brand cocaine, and people would be like, I'm, I'm a buck, I can trust you. I don't need to test that first. Oh, that's funny. So the Quaker man, I was looking uh, to see who it was based on because all those things are modeled on somebody. And I came across that the the very famous um, version of it that you and I grew up with, it was painted by um, uh, Haddon Sunblom, who painted the Coke Santa. Oh, okay. And once you know that, you can kind of see the difference sure. or the, the, dis- the similarity. But anyway, um, some people say it was based on William Penn of the famous comedy duo Penn and Teller. Yeah. <laughs> but apparently Quaker Oats says, no, it wasn't based on anybody. But if you go look at the old Quaker Oats, like the original ads, it looks a lot like William Penn. Yeah, I agree. Yeah. And I love that you sent me the uh, that little nostalgic page on <laughs> the old 1970s and 80s. Uh, the little, I mean, they still make them, the, those delicious sugary flavored packets of Quaker oatmeal. Yeah, you can see the, the progression of them from like, Un like zero taste to yeah. you know adding raisins and then all this stuff and then by the nineties there was like a blue raspberry one did you see that no grody but I think that was on <laughs> that was on clickamericana.com, which is a great site for nostalgia like that uh, I do like the overnight oats thing that's something I didn't mm-hmm. know was a thing until a couple of years ago yeah seems to be very popular now but those are those are tasty all the kids these days are eating overnight oats. That's right. It's the it's the hipster version of hot oatmeal. <laughs> so um, I we got we have to talk about coffee for a couple of reasons. I mean, we did an entire episode on coffee. We did an entire episode on caffeine. So we'll keep it short. Agreed. Yeah, because we covered most of this. Um, but the very origin, the very origin, <laughs> the origin of how supposedly, and it's a pretty good story, even if it's not true, mm-hmm. uh, but the legend of the Ethiopian goat herder that saw goats eating what ended up being coffee beans or coffee berries, and those goats started jumping around and dancing and getting down and boogieing, and the goat herder was like, huh, um, let me see if I want to eat one of those, and they realized the stimulating effects right off the bat, and caffeine and coffee beans became a thing. Yep. That was Kaldi, by the way, the Ethiopian herder. That's right. So in the colonies uh, in America, everybody mostly drank tea, even though coffee had made its way to Europe by then. But everybody liked tea. And then England began to heavily tax tea. And so they adopted coffee widely in America. It became kind of a patriotic thing to drink coffee. But then round about this time, or maybe a century or so before, depending on who you ask, Coffee started to replace beer and wine as like the breakfast drink because people noticed that you didn't like fall over on your scythe at 11 a.m. if you drank coffee for breakfast and you would if you drank a bunch of like hard cider instead. Yeah, drinking booze for breakfast is, unless you're at Sunday brunch, it's not a great way to start your work day. 
No, not at all. So get this, Chuck. Sixty-three <clears throat> percent of Americans drink coffee every day. Yep. Seems like a lot, right? Yeah. Aus- Australia has this just totally beat. Seventy-five percent of people in Australia drink coffee every single day. That doesn't surprise me. They do. They do everything to the max. Okay, so so you you think that's pretty impressive, though? Listen to this. <laughs> oh boy. In the UK, eighty-four oh, percent of wow. people who live in the UK drink tea every day. Oh, okay. I thought you were about to say coffee. That no, would I would have been blown away. Yeah, no, they don't do that. But eighty-four percent of people drink tea over there, and only sixty-three percent of Americans drink coffee. I my I feel like I'm standing on my head right now. <laughs> uh, should we do OJ? Yeah. All right. Well, orange juice. Is such a staple item for breakfast, even though uh, apparently it's over the past couple of decades, consumption of orange juice has been going down in the United States. Uh, but it's still a staple breakfast item. And this is because, again, people were drinking low alcohol booze at breakfast for, you know, many hundreds of years. Mm-hmm. And then finally, uh, Orange juice came along, but it was really expensive. Oranges were expensive. They You can't grow them everywhere, obviously, so getting them you know, across America was an issue. But trains came along, and all of a sudden you could get oranges around the country pretty speedily. Mm-hmm. And vitamin C became a thing in the 1920s where scientists isolated and said, hey, this stuff is really good for you, and there's a lot of it in oranges. And this this is also another breakfast food that came about because the company was like, uh, we need to uh, unload a bunch of these things. And yeah. there was a bumper crop of oranges in 1916. <clears throat> and so orange producers kind of got together and started a campaign called Drink an Orange. Uh, and it was like, you know, buy a bunch of oranges and make orange juice and drink that for breakfast. So that's another idea where it came from. But they ran into a problem until the 1940s, Chuck. And that was that, yeah, you could get oranges across the country, and you could get orange juice kind of far, but there was a chance it was going to show up turned. It was going to spoil along the way. And so the U.S. government was like, our soldiers want orange juice, but we can't give it to them. We're going to give a bunch of money to anybody who can come up with a way to get orange juice across the United States without it turning bad. That's right. And that's when frozen concentrate orange juice came into play mm-hmm. uh, thanks to the Minute Maid Company. And I, have, I haven't had that stuff since I was a kid, but I have great <laughs> nostalgia for it yeah. because that's how we drank orange juice in my house growing up. Yeah, I just realized that that's what's wrong with my freezer as an adult. It's missing, like, <laughs> that Minute Maid can that was just kind of like a little blast of sunshine every time you open the freezer, you know? Yeah, and I will say this. Even though there are many more ways to make a sophisticated cocktail, mm-hmm. if you're hanging out in the summertime by the pool and you happen to have, like, a, a blender nearby, sure, there are a lot worse things you can do than get some limeade or some of that strawberry frozen junk and make a big thing of frozen daiquiris, just cheapy little right. frozen daiquiris. Yeah, remember that Bacardi Breezers ad from the 80s where <laughs> the person went inside? When they came out, her friends were like 80 years old, and they're like, what took you so long? The weird thing. Oh, man. So uh, Minute Maid, by the way, was founded by a guy named Richard Morse who invented that process of creating concentrate from orange juice and shipping it across the country. And for the first season, they packaged for a company called Snow Crop. It took off like a rocket. Minute Maid said, eh, we're going to stop doing that and form our own company. And they did. Why do they spell it like that, though? That's the one thing I've never understood. Minute Maid? 
Yeah, why isn't I mean, why isn't it spelled M A D E like it's made in a minute? That's what right. it implies. Why is it spelled like a housemaid? I'm going to make something up completely, but <laughs> okay. you could also call it hazarding a guess, okay? Sure, let's hear it. So it's it's made in a minute. So you get that just from the the minute made together. Uh-huh. But the fact that they spell it like that makes it seem like it's so easy to make. You might as well have a domestic servant helping you. Yeah. You think that's, that's my it? guess. That's my guess. Now I'm wondering what the actual definition of made is. There may be something in there that I don't know about. I don't think so. I think I'm right here. And of course, I very quickly just Googled made, and the first thing that pops up is a bunch of uh, sexy Halloween outfits. Halloween costumes. <laughs> I'm sure of it. I'll bet, man. Uh, should we take another break and then finish up with a, a, a triplet of delicious uh, pancakey, waffly, French toasty things? Indeed, I do, Chuck. I think that's a great plan. Something that makes me crazy is when people say, well, I had this career before, but it was a waste. And that's where the perspective shift comes, that it's not a waste that everything you've done has built you to where you are now. This is She Pivots, the podcast where we explore the inspiring pivots women have made and dig deeper into the personal reasons behind them. Join me, Emily Tish sussman every Wednesday on She Pivots as I sit down with inspiring women like Misty Copeland, Brooke Shields, Vanessa Hudgens, and so many more. We dive into how these women made their pivot and their mindset shifts that happened as a result. It's a podcast about women, their stories, and how their pivot became their success. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Saleha Mosin, and I've covered economic policy for years and reported on how it impacts people across the United States. In 2016, I saw how voters were leaning towards Trump and how so many Americans felt misunderstood by Washington. So I started The Big Take D.C. We dig into how money, politics, and power shape government and the consequences for voters. It's an election year, so there's a lot of focus on the voters that TikTok is reaching. The initial reaction is like, oh, things are looking so resilient. I don't want to be too pessimistic, but I just don't see the political will down in Washington right now to, to change their tune. I think the American electorate has been signaling that it expects a rematch of the 2020 election. These are unprecedented times. With new episodes every Thursday, you can listen to The Big Take DC on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. Western nations like the U.S. and Europe Mexico will likely have its first female president. And then you have China. And help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters. He'll get his yo-yos to Europe in time. But the longer this drags on, the more worry he's getting. They knew that they needed to do this as fast as they possibly could to get a drug on the market as fast as they could. I'm David Gura. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleh Mosin. We cover the stories behind what's moving money and markets. Basically, everyone was expecting, if not a calamity, certainly a recession. But the problem is that that paperwork, as our reporting showed, is fake. 
someone who's covering the market, I'm often very worried about an imminent collapse. So I'm thinking about it quite often. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I never thought I'd take my three young kids to Sicily to solve a century-old mystery. But that's what I'm doing in my new podcast, The Sicilian Inheritance. Join us as we travel thousands of miles on the beautiful and crazy island of Sicily. As I trace my roots back through a mystery for the ages and untangle clues within my family's origin story, which has morphed like a game of telephone through the generations. Was our family matriarch killed in a land deal gone wrong? Or was it by the Sicilian mafia? A lover's quarrel? Or was she, as my father believed, a witch? Listen to The Sicilian Inheritance on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Okay, so we're back, and we're talking first about pan clocks. <laughs> Have you ever seen Fifty First Dates? Uh, I've seen parts of it. I don't know if I ever saw it all. Adam Sandler's trying to um, attract Drew Barrymore, yeah. so he pretends like he's trying to order off the menu, but he can't read, so he's sounding it out. Uh-huh. He says, pan clocks? <laughs> and then he gets all frustrated. It's a pretty cute little scene. But anyway. Oh, that's funny. That was a reference to that. Instead, we're talking about pancakes. And you said that um, oats are one of the oldest uh, uh, breakfasts. And actually, it seems that pancakes are probably the oldest breakfast of all time because they found that um, Utsi, remember our friend Utsi the Iceman? Oh, sure. He had a breakfast of einkorn wheat in his stomach, and they think that he probably ate it in the form of a cooked pancake. Oh, interesting. Yeah. Because you can make a batter out of some sort of grain and pour it on a hot rock, and mm-hmm. there's your griddle right there. Yeah, that's a good point. Mm-hmm. Um, there are all kinds of different pancakes throughout antiquity uh, that were made from all kinds of ingredients, depending on kind of what was readily available. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, you even consider like a potato pancake a pancake because the name is right there. Mm-hmm. Um, if you're talking official recipes, uh, it was a Dutch cook in the 16th century. Uh, that I think has the first official pancake recipe. But that, like you said, that was way, way later. You know, people had been eating some kind of pancakey thing for a long, long time. Right. And since it was around so long, different cultures kind of tinkered with it here or there and came up with like their favored version of it. So that's why you have so many different pancakes today. You've got um, the American pancake or flapjack, mm-hmm. which I looked it up. Same exact thing. It's apparently just a just a regional difference in the name. Yeah. Uh, if you're in Australia, you'll eat pancakes for dessert. Mm, okay. Apparently, Germans eat them as strips alongside soup. Didn't yeah, I've that. never heard of that. No, I haven't either. But the Swedish know what they're doing because they they top their they basically go the IHOP route and yeah. they put whipped cream on their pancakes and and like sweetened fruit too. I think that's the deal. Why it's the international house of pancakes, right? Oh, I guess so, because they also have crepes, the French version. Yeah, I never really thought about it before, which is kind of dumb. I never really considered a crepe like a French pancake. I guess, I mean, I know it's similar, but I don't know. The taste is too different to me. It's more of a pan clock. (laughs) You like pancake? What's your favorite of pancake, waffle, or French toast? Man, why would you do this to me? I can actually tell you that French toast is my favorite. 
favorite. Oh. But I will eat pancakes any day of the week. Any time of day, any day of the week. I love pancakes. But the actual, like, delicacy, like, the taste or the delicateness and just general, like, like mouthfeel, mm-hmm. if I can get weird and gross, <laughs> of French toast is, like, it, it's tough to beat that. Yeah. I, see, I love all those, too. But, boy, a crispy waffle. Sure. Those The way those squares fill up with syrup. Yeah. As the, little individual cubicles just waiting for me to dive in. <laughs> That's right. Oh, God. That's why there's always a line at the Holiday Inn Express the next morning <laughs> around the, the always far too few waffle makers. I remember when we toured Australia, uh, the Virgin Air Lounge uh, in the airport had mm-hmm. uh, waffle makers. Nice. And I'd seen them in, uh, you know, hotel, uh, like like the Hampton Inn. Mm-hmm. do-it-yourself thing, but I'd never yeah. seen them in a uh, in an airport lounge. It was quite a little treat. Did it have the Virgin logo emblazoned on it? No, but, I mean, since we're there, I guess we should talk about that because apparently waffles uh, in the early days of, uh, not early days of religion, but in medieval Europe, at least, the Catholic Church mm-hmm. actually had, and I'm not sure how they did this. That's the one thing I couldn't figure out, but... They had biblical scenes and things on the waffle. So they 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 made them using etched plates. Oh, okay. So it was uh, in the mold. Exactly. So it's just exactly like what we do today, except they had theirs on like long handles and they held it over a fire and then turned them over. Oh, okay. That, that makes it. sense. And so the original uh, waffle apparently goes back, or the, the predecessor of it's called the Obelios, goes back to um, ancient Greece, and it was basically, you know, an extension of pancakes, but rather than cooking it on one flat surface and turning it over, they would cook it between two metal plates and then Mm -hmm. turn the whole thing over. Um, And that was the predecessor of the waffle. And, you know, give or take a thousand or so, maybe 2,000 years. Nah, yeah, about 2,000 years. (laughs) The Catholic Church said waffles are so awesome, we're going to basically make them plan B of the communion wafer. That's right. And the little printed waffles that I was talking about, uh, I think was, they started out with like, oh, hey, it's a cross mm-hmm. or something a little, you know, less fancy. Mm-hmm. But as time went on, they got really, uh, they kind of went crazy with this stuff and they would have like landscapes and family crests and they got way more elaborate uh, I'd like to see. I couldn't find a picture of any of those. Did you see any? No, I didn't, but I can imagine them. Okay. <laughs> I can guess what they look like. I just I tie the waffle so closely to that grid, squared right. grid pat- pattern, it would just look strange. So I've got one on that. They think that the word waffle came from a derivation of wafer, mm-hmm. right? Like the communion wafer. But I saw another explanation, too, that it might have come from waffle, W-F-A-L, um, or gaufre, G-A-U-F-R-E, which is Old French. Mm-hmm. And in the Old French, gaufre or waffle means a piece of a honey beehive. Oh, well, so, so you got the honeycomb? Yes. I love it. I do too. Those Old French knew what they were talking about. Yeah, and they were cooked back then, like you said, between these iron plates on uh, like long-handled over a fire. Mm-hmm. Uh, I have these things at the camp now. They're not in the shape of a waffle, but they're called pie irons. Oh, okay. And it's the same kind of thing. You just put yeah. bread in there, and you can make little pizzas, or you can make little apple pies or whatever, and uh, you just like spray the, the iron, put the bread in there, and I guess it was the same for the waffle, and then squeeze them together and then hold mm-hmm. it over a fire and brown it up really nicely. 
I've got something for you to try then that you might that might work with that. Um, okay. It's called a chaffle. Okay. And instead of like a, a grain based or cereal based batter, you use um, eggs and cheese mixed together as the batter, but you do everything else the exact same. So what is it? Is it just like a little square gridded omelet? Basically. Okay. And easily cooked. Like you could very easily cook it in that um, pie iron. All right. Give it a shot and report back. I will. Okay. So there's there's um, a guy named Cornelius Swarthout, which I love. And he's actually the guy who was first granted a patent for a waffle iron back in 1869. Like a real deal waffle iron? Yeah. yeah. And apparently on that day, August 24th, the date that he was granted the patent, that is considered National Waffle Day here in the United States. I love it. And as legend goes, who knows if it's true, but uh, they credit Thomas Jefferson mm-hmm. with bringing over those long-handed pie iron style waffle irons to America right. in the late 1700s. I guess he saw those things were like these are fantastic. Yeah. And walking it back to pancakes for another second, um, one of the reasons why they seem to be so old is that so many different cultures came up with them on their own independently. Like, um, you can't really say that they were imported to America because the Native Americans were already making their own. They just used cornmeal. Mm -hmm. So, like, all of the different techniques kind of came together. And in America, we said, we like this, this, and this, and you got the American pancake. But the reason I wanted to kind of walk it back is because we just talked about National Waffle Day. There's National Pancake cake day too. Of course. But in certain countries, Fat Tuesday or Shrove Tuesday is also National Pancake Day. And that apparently dates back to medieval times, not the dark ages, um, where people would use up all of their fats, their eggs, their sugar, stuff that they had to give up for Lent mm-hmm. on the last day before Lent, which was Fat Tuesday or Shrove Tuesday. Makes a lot of sense. It really does, Chuck. Uh, that brings us to French toast. Uh, I do love French toast because you can – I love just the little cheap old sliced bread version you can do at home. Mm-hmm. I like going to a fancy brunch restaurant and having the big, uh, mm-hmm. really delicious kind of like challah bread French toast. And Man. there are all kinds of different breads they can use and like the vanilla and – it's this is all just making me so hungry. But oh, the mouth feel. Uh, there's that's twice. Uh, there's a, a, a legend that you know I saw all over the internet. Apparently, everyone has seen this who looks into French toast history. But I just don't know if it's true because it's not documented, and it may be one of those sort of internet stories that there was a man named Joseph French mm-hmm. who was an innkeeper in the 1700s that made this meal, and the name. Uh, he didn't want to call it French's toast because supposedly he did not make it an apostrophe. Right. Uh, and so it became French toast. But uh, that just seems dubious to me. It does because it's it, – and it's contradicted by the historical record because the first use of the term French toast for a type of toast that is dipped in like an eggy batter mm-hmm. um, and then fried – um, shows up in 1660. So it would have well, been have in it. the century before that that guy. In a book called The Accomplished, um, I have to spell it, A-C-C-O-M-P-L-I-S-H-T, Cook. <laughs> right. I love it. Like the S should be backwards in there. Yeah, it totally should be. <laughs> so that's where the first use of French toast came from. And so people would say like, well, okay, so the French came up with this. There shouldn't be any really big mystery f- to it. That apparently is not the case because the French call it pain perdue, mm-hmm. 
which means lost bread, which means bread that's gone stale. And yeah. You didn't want to just throw out bread. You would use it, and one way you could use it was for French toast. But it seemed like they were calling it lost bread after an older English tradition, which they just called lost bread. So the French didn't call it French toast, and they didn't lay any kind of claim to um, French toast as like their national invention. There's some other really interesting ideas of where it possibly came from, the name French toast, right? Yeah, I mean, the, the whole idea of French, like a French fry, is mm-hmm. not from France either. Uh, that comes from the, the slicing technique. The old Irish word for to slice is French, right. like French that potato. Uh, and so that sort of falls in line with the same thing with French toast, that it would be a sliced bread. Right. Um, I do love the whole lost bread thing, and that all makes perfect sense, that you would, you know, if bread was a little stale, if you dip it in something and fry it in a pan, yeah. you're still going to be able to enjoy that bread. It won't taste super stale. And with French toast in particular, that name, there's, there's some food historians who say maybe that could be it, but they suspect that it's actually marketing um, among some people, especially in America, to call it French toast because it makes it sound fancier. Yeah, I totally buy that. And then get this, dude, in Great Britain— specifically in Windsor, um, that's called Poor Knights of Windsor. That's what you you would order, Poor Knights of Windsor, and they would bring you French toast. Yeah, I've never heard of that. Um, now, are these competing explanations for that? Or is, is no, it it's sort just, of the that's same what version? They call, that's what they call French toast, and it has its own story. No, no, no. I mean the competing stories for where that came from, because one I saw said that uh, – the the battle of uh, what is it? Crecy, oh yeah, C R E C Y mm-hmm. in France in 1346. Uh, there were knights who were captured by the French, and they basically had to sell off their lands in order to pay their way out of that, uh, mm-hmm. pay for their release. And Edward the Third, as legend goes, gave them uh, a place to stay in Windsor Castle. Uh, in trade for their labor, so they were they would be the poor knights because knights, you know, it's not like all the knights were rich or anything like that, right? Uh, and they stayed in Windsor Castle, so they were the poor knights of Windsor. But I, I guess that they were fed that there. Maybe that's where I don't, I don't get know the connection. The, well, I like the other explanation, the more French for that connection, <laughs> right? So the reason why you might call it poor knights, there's another explanation, is that so if you were a gentry, landed gentry during the medieval era, you were expected to serve dessert at dinner. And knights were gentry, but not all knights were rich, as you said. And so to kind of like still serve dessert, they would serve this French toast with jam as a dessert because it was very cheap and easy to make. Yeah. And so it would be called poor knight. Oh, that's interesting because the uh, – what's that sandwich that we talked about before? The croque monsieur? No, the one that's uh, made like French toast but it has jam in it, the – the, the Monte, Monte Cristo. Cristo. Yeah. Yeah, I wonder if that's came from that, too. I don't know, man. Maybe. Can we talk about, can we finish with brunch? Oh, man, there's no way we can't finish with brunch. We, we need to do brunch in this one and part two. Yeah, I think so, because brunch, um, brunch is something that we had growing up occasionally, like, uh, very rarely when we were allowed to skip church growing up. Uh, I think my mom would say, you know, we can have brunch at the house. Uh, and that was just the first time I'd ever heard that word. It it didn't become like a um, like an out-to-eat-at-a-restaurant kind of thing in my mm-hmm. life until much, mm-hmm. much later. And, of course, now brunch is a very trendy, like, big-time Saturday and Sunday weekend meal. 
Uh, it is if you ever read uh, the height of the New York brunch heyday from the mid two thousands, where uh, just things got so out of hand with like the all you can drink mimosas and and bloody marys and people getting in fist fights and people waiting in line for hours and then they're angry and they're drunk. It's just like it gave brunch a bad name, but brunch is really one of the great meals if you can indulge a bit. Man, one of the best brunch drinks I've ever had, or one of the best drinks I've ever had, was called a breakfast Negroni. Mm, I love it. And it was made with Aperol, so it was much sweeter. And I mm-hmm. can't remember what else they put it in, but oh man, it was so good. And that was in a New York brunch place for sure. Uh, where does brunch come from, though? They don't know, but the earliest we've ever found, and obviously it's breakfast and lunch, so some yeah. probably a million people came up with it. But the first guy to write it down in print was a guy named Guy Berenger, who was a British author, and he published an essay in 1895 in the uh, the magazine, I guess, Hunter's Weekly, and it was called Brunch Colon, colon. a plea, <laughs> and in this he basically says, "Hey." We all, like, um, have Sunday brunch, and it's, like, a huge meat-filled affair that people eat after church, and it's too much. It's too much because not all of us go to church, and some of us really drink too much the night before. So we need something else that is going to replace that midday meal. Let's call it brunch, and it's meant to basically get over a hangover. Yeah, and that makes sense. Uh, They also trace its roots as a meal I don't know if they called it brunch. In fact, they didn't. They called it a, a hunt breakfast. Uh, in England, I guess, before they went out on the fox hunt, mm-hmm. they would have these really big multi-course meals. And it sounds a lot like brunch. They would have sweet pastries and fruit and meat and eggs and sort of like a big smorgasbord. Right. Uh, and for the same reasons, because they had to have something large to eat. And this was before they ate big breakfast, I guess. And in the 1930s is when it seems to have caught on in the U.S., right? Yeah. Apparently, it was Hollywood movie stars who started to brunch, and everybody said, oh, I've got to start doing that because that sounds pretty <laughs> awesome. And it is awesome. Um, and apparently, one of the reasons why it took off was because um, people stopped going to church as much after World War II, but they still wanted to do something, you know, socially on Sunday mornings to replace it. So, brunch kind of filled that vacuum. <laughs> I'm trying to picture the— uh the Newswire reports on that. <laughs> you know, Church Rock attendance Hudson. down. <laughs> yeah. Or well, Rock Hudson sits down at 10.30 a.m. for a meal. What? <laughs> <laughs> right. Uh, it is a great meal, though. You know, church attendance is down. Another thing that happened supposedly post-World War II is uh, when women started joining the workforce more, mm-hmm. they were like, hey, uh, I like to do a little something fun on the weekend, too, right? So can I go out and eat Sunday brunch as well? Mm-hmm. And I wondered because, you know, that, that same working mom was still, like, expected to cook at home. I'm sure. So going to Sunday brunch was a way to give her a break. Exactly. And it made me wonder if that's where the origin of Mother's Day brunch came from. Oh, maybe so. Because I think people who don't normally do brunch still do brunch on Mother's Day, you know? Yeah, my brunch thing is I, I still always get almost exclusively breakfast things mm-hmm. uh, along with, like, a Bloody Mary. But I, I'd never have understood the lunch side of brunch. It's more of a, the time that you eat it, but you know, people do go in there and get like a shrimp cocktail or a, Hmm. or a sandwich, like a lunch sandwich. And uh, I think some people see that as the beauty of brunch is that it's sort of that one time of the day you can order from both sides of the menu. Mm -hmm. But uh, I still just do my breakfast stuff. So I saw the year after Guy Berenger um, 
said, you know, he introduced brunch, uh, that somebody said, well, if you eat it closer to lunch, you have to call it blunch. And it didn't catch on for very <laughs> obvious reasons. Hey, you want to go get some blunch? <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah, if you were hungover, it'd just make you vomit on the spot. Yeah, no good. You got anything else for now? I have nothing else. I think we should do a breakfast part two at some point. I agree. Um, and since I agreed to what Chuck just said, uh, that means listener mail is unlocked. Yeah, and maybe people uh, can send in their unusual breakfast oh, traditions, and yeah. maybe we can kind of incorporate that in. Yeah, it's a great idea. All right, so I thought this email was really cool. This ties into our mangroves episode. Uh, this is from Caleb Vicari. Can't help wonder if you guys knew just how relevant your episode on mangrove trees is to the gaming community right now. Uh, the game Minecraft just recently got a large update that added mangrove swamps to the game. Oh, wow. Uh, specifically featuring red mangroves. Uh, they're very unique compared to all the other trees in the game, and you guys have just clarified exactly why. Uh, because of the addition of mangrove trees, we now have uh, also have root blocks upon which the new trees are elevated off the ground, just like in real life. Mm -hmm. uh, replanting them is also very different from the other trees in the game. Typically, you would need to break the leaf blocks on other trees, each of which has a chance to drop a sapling, which you can then plant and wait for it to grow into a tree. Sweet. Uh, the mangrove trees, however, will instead have uh, propagules. Am I saying that right? It sounds like it. Propagules growing on them, which I believe are the living birth trees you were talking about. You can take these and plant them either on the ground or in water, which is also unique to mangroves in the game. Neat. Uh, point is, the game brought a lot of interest in mangroves into me, and now you guys have amplified that, so thank you. Keep being awesome. And again, that is from Caleb Vicari. Great name. Thanks, Caleb. Yeah, totally. And that was in World of Warcraft, you said? No. <laughs> Were you making a joke? Yeah. <laughs> It's in uh, Game of Thrones. <laughs> Thanks a lot, Caleb. That's pretty cool because I don't know that we would have ever known that, you know, or heard about that. So no, thank you I don't, for letting I don't play us Minecraft. know. You told us something we should know, some stuff. Uh, if you want to be like Caleb and tell us some stuff we should know, we are wide open for that. It'd be pretty hypocritical if we weren't. Uh, you can send it in an email to stuffpodcast at iheartradio.com. Stuff You Should Know is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Something that makes me crazy is when people say, well, I had this career before, but it was a waste. And that's where the perspective shift comes, that it's not a waste that everything you've done has built you to where you are now. This is She Pivots, the podcast where we explore the inspiring pivots women have made and dig deeper into the personal reasons behind them. Join me, Emily Tish sussman every Wednesday on She Pivots. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. We cover the stories behind what's moving money and markets and help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters every afternoon. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleha Mosin. And I'm David Gura. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. 
The Therapy for Black Girls podcast is your space to explore mental health, personal development, and all of the small decisions we can make to become the best possible versions of ourselves. I'm your host, Dr. Joy Harden-Bradford, a licensed psychologist in Atlanta, Georgia, and I can't wait for you to join the conversation every Wednesday. Listen to the Therapy for Black Girls podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Take good care, and we'll see you there. Welcome to Season 9 of Next Question with me, Katie Couric. I've got some big news to share with you in our season premiere featuring the one and only Chris Jenner. Oh my gosh, congratulations. That is very, very exciting. And that's just the beginning. We'll also be joined by podcast host Jay Shetty, Hillary Clinton, Renee Fleming, Liz Cheney, and many more. So come on in, take a break from the incessant negativity for a weekly dose of fascinating conversations. Some of them, I promise, will actually put you in a good mood. Listen to Next Question with me, Katie Couric, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.